The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. thrilled and, and so thankful to have Dr. Stephen Beck here to bring God's Word to us this morning. I want to give him as much time as possible to preach, but some of you know he's had bronchitis for the last five weeks, and so I'm going to save his voice at least a few words uh, by reading our scripture passage for us this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, if you'd turn there with me. If you want to use one of the pew Bibles in front of you, page 976. Hear God's word from Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God." built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. Good morning. I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Stephen Beck. I am an American, Canadian, German, Austrian guy who found out a few years ago, he's also Jewish, who's been alive for 64 years in a skin color called white, by now finds it terribly boring. And I've determined that when I stand before God, before we start into all eternity, I'm going to ask him to make me black, because I think that's the most beautiful skin color. Create, I was really disappointed to see so many of this great skin color leave to go back into their service, actually, uh, instead of being here to hear me say, you're the most beautiful people in the world. So uh, after many, many years, uh, God sent Susan and me to Germany, in my case, back to Germany where I grew up. 
And that's where God has, in the last several years, done an absolutely astounding and extraordinary work of awakening in the church. Of all places, Germany, known to many of you as the land of the Reformation, but uh, that was a long, long time ago. Now Germany is one of the top three atheistic countries in the world. It has been known as being a curse to the nations, one of those countries that sought to exterminate the Jews, a country in which evangelicals only make up 2% of the population. And it's into this Germany that God brought a tsunami several years ago as our Christian Prime Minister, Angela Merkel, declared to the nation that we're not going to be a curse to the nations any longer. With the coming of the refugees, we're going to lead with the mercy of God. She told Germans to go back to church, learn their faith. She told Germans on public television to start reading the Bible because the Muslims are coming and we want to be able to explain the Christian faith to them. And they did, they did come. They came about two million of them. And what happened in the sovereignty of God is that so many of them started coming into German churches with questions like, who, who is Jesus? Or what's really in the Bible? And so we had people from Iran, Afghanistan, Syria, the African countries, swelling little congregations, including the little church plant that 24 students from the seminary where I teach and Susan and I had started in downtown Frankfurt. And what we experienced across Germany was thousands of conversions of Muslims and baptisms going on almost week after week after week. And in my own little congregation in downtown Frankfurt, I think of people who have changed my life, changed my whole perspective on church, like Abul. Abul was an Afghan Taliban leader who has converted to Jesus. Today he's involved in our newest church plant as one of the leaders welcoming Muslims to come in to the church plant so that they too can learn who Jesus is. I think of Saeed, an Iranian. I just never forget the moment Susan and I were standing behind him in the worship service and I, a formerly non-hand-raising worshiper, suddenly see Saeed in front of me raising his hands as we sang the words, Jesus is my Redeemer. I am no longer a slave. I am a son of God. And those precious moments when we recite the Apostles' Creed together simultaneously in nine different languages in order to present to the world that God has united people of all corners of the earth, every tongue, tribe, and nation to confess this one great faith in our great Savior, Jesus. And I think of 65-year-old Lupita, who's very conservative. She likes things done in order. She's from Ecuador. And even though she likes things done orderly and decently, she can't help herself when the music starts but to clap her hands. And she gets going, and she doesn't clap her hands because she's from a particular denomination. She claps her hands 
in praise to God for having saved her. And I think of the prayers of praise that come during our worship service. We allow for some spontaneous moments in an orderly fashion where people can, according to the theme of the service, raise their voice in a short prayer in their own mother tongue, one after the other. And so we hear it in Kui from the Ghanese. We hear prayers of praise in Spanish, then in German, and then in English, and then in Urdu, and so forth. I have to tell you that this whole development in my church plant in Frankfurt, as well as in what God did through these refugees and is doing across Europe, sent me back to the Scriptures several years ago to ask, what is going on? Where do we stand in history that this is happening? Because my German colleagues and missiologists were calling this the Kairos moment in German church history, a unique moment, a moment we've never experienced before, maybe we'll never experience again where God is taking a country known for being a curse to the nations and is turning the churches into being a blessing to the nations. One of the things that I found in Scripture is that there's a whole theology of the stranger, a theology of the foreigner. And you, you read constantly in the Scriptures how it's actually the immigrant whom God sends to nations in order to become a blessing to the nation. And I think of passages in the Old Testament where Israel is repeatedly told to not only care and love, care for and love the widow and the orphan, but also the foreigner, the stranger in your midst. There's always being told, for example, in Deuteronomy 10 verse 18, love the foreigner in your midst, for you too were once a foreigner. And God uses immigrants to remind us that we too were outside of Christ and we too were strangers to God. But in His grace, He brought us near, He brought us in into His household so that we're no longer guests or strangers, we're members of His family. The theology of the stranger, you think of, of, of people like Abraham. Abraham was a foreigner. And he was sent to a country in order to not only be a blessing to that country as a foreigner, but to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And then his son Isaac and his son Jacob. And then his son Joseph goes down to Egypt as an Israelite and becomes a blessing, a blessing to Egypt, but also a a blessing later on to the Israelites. We think of Moses. Moses was a foreigner in Egypt and brought a blessing to the Israelites. We think of Ruth, this dear woman, a Moabitess, who became a great blessing to Israel, but not only to Israel, but to the whole messianic line of Jesus. We think of Esther, Esther who was the one that God used to uh, redeem, liberate the people of Israel in Persia. We think of Daniel and his three friends. See, over and over and over again, God uses the immigrant to bring blessing to people. The greatest immigrant that God ever used, the greatest immigrant that you and I know of, his name is Jesus. He left his home in glory, went to a place where, in fact, they did not receive him. And he even, as a little child, had to find out what it's like to be an immigrant when his parents took him down to Egypt. And he grew up 
the foreign language, foreign culture. And this Jesus is now the one who's being declared in Ephesians chapter 2 as not only the one who is the, the immigrant par excellence, but he is, in fact, the one whose work has done something very, very special for people of many different cultures and nations who are at war with each other in the world, who dislike each other, who are in animosity towards each other, look down on each other in the world, this Jesus has done a great work. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul picks up on this age-old conflict that has existed between Gentiles and Jews. Probably the most extreme racial animosity that has ever existed. The constant repeated attempts of Gentiles to exterminate the Jews. And then the reaction of the Jews right back to the Gentiles to hate them, to be hostile towards them, to look down on them. And for a long, long time, says the Apostle Paul, there's been a wall of separation between the Gentiles and the Jews, between Gentiles and Gentiles, between cultures and nations. But something happened at the cross. You'll notice in our text in verse 11, it says, at one time, and in verse 12, at that time, and then in verse 13, but now, but now what? But now Christ at the cross has destroyed this wall And he has killed the animosity that exists between nationalities and cultures. And how has he done that? The text tells us that there's been a a radical shift that has happened. And we need to, with our spiritual eyes today, see what this radical shift is. The Apostle Paul writes here that Jesus gathered the elect of every nation, of every culture, group, of every tribe and language into one body, namely His body. You notice it in verse 15. He creates in Himself. What does He create in Himself? Verse 14. He made the two into one. One what? And here's the key phrase I want you to focus on for the rest of your life. He made them into one, verse 15, new man. Now maybe at first reading, the first thought you have is, well, that means that he's making us all into a new creation. And we're so used to thinking that salvation is something just individually. Actually, that's what Paul is dealing with in the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2, how The salvation of God has changed us individually. But now in verse 12, he goes from the individual salvation to the global, the collective. And he says he has made the two two groups into one new man. That's not an individual, that's a collective group. John Stott in his commentary says perhaps we could translate this, he has made them into one new society. I think that's a grand way of translating it. Let me suggest you another way of translating the word man here, that he has made the two into one new humanity. A new humanity. 
the humanity the way it was meant to be, where you have all this beautiful and creative diversity in skin colors and cultural ways of doing things, but a deep unity where people actually come together and love each other and respect each other in praise of the one great King, Jesus. And so, what the cross has essentially affected is a new humanity. And when we come together as a church, a local congregation, and we come together as, as people of different skin colors and different cultural ways and even different languages, and we all come together in a mutual love and respect for each other and a great adoration of Jesus who made it all possible. We are then the one new humanity in its imperfect form. When we're in heaven, we'll be in our perfected form. Then we'll stand before the Lamb, Revelation 5, 9, and we will all sing, worthy are you who has redeemed from every tongue, tribe, and nation and has made a people for yourself. So what I'm saying is, and what Paul is pushing home here is in, in these verses, is that the church, the congregation, is the stage on which God is playing out the one new humanity and what it looks like. And the local church becomes the stage on which God is, is playing out a, a, a development that the world watches, that unbelievers see and recognize, wow, what we cannot do in the world with our politics, what we cannot do in the world with our United Nations, the cross of Jesus has the power to do. It has created a one new humanity church. So that's our goal. That's our calling It's the calling of every local church is to be a one new humanity church. So, if we're going to be a one new humanity church, where do we start? I would suggest, first of all, begin to see the foreigner from the perspective of the kingdom of God. Paul gives us some pictures here in in chapter 2 of of what this one new humanity church looks like. He tells us in verse 19 that we've now become fellow citizens with the saints. That means that we all have one and the same citizenship. You could bring here into this grand sanctuary a couple of Russian Jews and some Ethiopians, and some white, or many white Americans, and some Afro-Americans, and bring in the Puerto Ricans and the Mexicans, bring in the Germans, and bring in the people that the Germans don't like, the Turks, and bring in the Congolese from next door, and bring in the Burmese. And when we're all gathered together, there isn't one group that's more distinguished than the other. We all have the same value. We all have the same right to be here in worship of the Lamb of God, 
because we all have the same citizenship. You know, I go through customs a lot because I travel a lot, and I see the passports people are pulling out, and they're all different colors because they come from different nations. And I think of the fact that the gathering of the church, you know what it is? It's like we've gone through the customs of the cross of Jesus, and we all carry in our hands the very same passport. On the front of our passports, it says, Kingdom of God. And then you open up the passport, and inside is the picture of the person who belongs to the kingdom of God. You know, he might be black, or he might be white, or he might be Hispanic, but we all have the same seal that's been stamped on our pictures. And on the seal it says, owned by Christ. See, we're so used to looking at the immigrant and the foreigner, the stranger, the woman with the head covering. We're so used to looking at these people politically. We're so used to looking at them economically. Well, we're better off than they are. We're so used to looking at them educationally. We're a little more intelligent than they are. We're so used to looking at them historically. They did us wrong a few years ago. We're so used to being racist. I saw a television show, a BBC uh, interview with a professor from Harvard University who was saying that um, what we need in order to... uh, stop all this racism in the world is we need better education. And I just wanted to scream into the television as well as to the world. No, the problem with racism doesn't begin with education. It begins with our hearts. Every one of us is a racist. And every one of us needs to daily repent as we look at people who are very different from us and understand that in Christ, they are fellow citizens. Their home is heaven just like ours. And they have every right to be here with us as much as we have been given the right by Jesus to be here. Another picture that the Apostle Paul paints here is that of a temple. We've become fellow, if you will, building blocks in the temple of God. Now he talks about, uh, verse 20, about the foundation being the apostles and prophets and the cornerstone, verse 20, being Christ. I want to focus on the fact that in verse 21, he calls every one of us, regardless of what culture we come from or background, or even what religion we came from, he calls us fellow building blocks in the wall of the temple. Peter calls us living stones. But I want you to focus for just a moment on that phrase, the whole structure being joined together in verse 21. And then he repeats that in verse 22. In him you also are being built together. The picture here is, is, is one of different stones, even with different shapes and different colors, but they're being carefully placed side by side. The force of the word here is even they're being fitted into each other. You ought to take a moment and just look around who all is here. And when you do, you need to realize that the reason why these people are here, regardless of what nationality they come from, they're here because they're being fitted with you into one temple wall. 
And the beautiful thing about this phrase, the grammar suggests that we're being joined together is, is, is a work of progress. What that means is, is that every local church is a gathering of people from many nations. is an unfinished work. It's still in progress. None of us can say, well, this is Westminster Press and this is the way it needs to be forever. Because that's not how it works. This temple wall with all these stones being fitted in to each other's in a progress of being built bigger and bigger. And here's the other thing we need to understand from this phrase. We're not the ones who are building it. Jesus is. You know, he's building this local church. It's like 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says that the Spirit of God places each member of the church into the body as he chooses. So what we do know is this, or what we don't know is this, what we're going to look like in 10 years. What we do know is this, it won't be what we look like now. Because Jesus is continuing to build his church. And so we as the living stones are being placed into this temple wall. We need to submit. We need to let go. It's not my church. It's his church. It's not we built this church. He's building this church. So we do not look at the foreigner politically, economically, educationally, but through kingdom eyes, And we recognize that in Christ, He has as much right to be here as as we do because He has the same passport. And because He's just as much a building block in this beautiful, diverse temple wall as you and I are. So that's the first thing we need to do. We need to, in fact, begin to see the foreigner from the perspective of the one new humanity church. The second thing we need to then start doing is to live multiculturally and reach out to the foreigner. I was at a conference in Dallas uh, a few months ago because there's a movement in the USA uh, that's uh, called Mosaics, and it's a movement actually to transform monocultural churches into multicultural or multi-ethnic churches. One of the speakers uh, was Albert Tate. He's an um, Afro-American, started a church a few years ago in Pasadena, California, called The Fellowship. And it is a gathering of people from many, many different nations. And Albert Tate made this statement. It was so good, I quickly wrote it down so I could give it on to you. He said this, God will not do intercultural in your church before he does intercultural in you. He will not do multicultural in your church on Sunday if you don't do multicultural in your neighborhood on Saturday and in your schools, workplaces, and friendships throughout the week. See, I think that every one of us bears the responsibility to recognize the walls of separation that we have built in our own hearts towards people who are different from us. And we need to repent. Maybe you want to start doing what I have to do, because I'm a racist, I know it. And maybe you need to join me in regular prayer that could sound something like this. Lord, 
You commanded me and my church to go and make disciples of all nations. Your commands were meant to be followed, and I intend to be obedient. Thank you that I don't have to go far to make disciples of all nations because you sent the nations to us. And so please, make the way for me to step into the life of an immigrant or a refugee. And when I do, give me the right questions to ask. Give me the right words to say. And give me the compassion of Jesus to show. Now if you start praying like this, you can start looking for natural encounters that will develop, that the Holy Spirit will create for you to meet the stranger. A few years ago, when I spoke at a conference here in the States, an American woman came to me after the conference and she said, I have a dilemma and I'd like some advice from you. She said, I've been living in this town now for a long time. We live at the end of a cul-de-sac and I noticed the other month that the Pakistani family moved into a house across from us. And every day when I'm out in the garden, I notice the Pakistani woman and her three children, they go for a walk and they walk by my house and they wave to me. And I don't know what to do. So what should I do? Well, first thing I did was I prayed to the Lord, help me not to be too sarcastic in my answer. And then I said, well, you know what? That woman and her family is living across the street from you because God wants her to know who Jesus is. So you need to befriend her. That's why God's having her raise her hand to wave at you. She said, well, how do I do that? Because I'm an introvert. And I said, oh, my soul. No, I didn't say that. I thought that. (laughs) I thought of my own wife who's an introvert, but she's driven by the cross into the life of so many strangers. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, next time that lady comes by and waves, why don't you wave back? Why don't you not not wave back? Why don't you stand up and walk over to her and greet her? Or maybe you want to just walk over to her house anyway and knock on her door and say, welcome to our neighborhood. You know, I love Pakistan and I understand you're from Pakistan. I'd love to know more about Pakistan. Would you like to come over to my house and have some tea? Tell me about what it was like to live in Pakistan. Tell me about the culture shock that you're going through now. She said, really, I can do that? I said, no, you must do that. Because that's why that lady has moved into your neighborhood. And that's why you've been there. So you see, this is what we need to do. We need to start getting eyes for the people that God has sent from all over the world to our doorsteps. And we need to ask the Lord, give us then the natural way to move into their lives. And here's what you do. Once you get their trust and they understand your integrity, then you invite them to church. And you ask them to come with you to a worship service. Even if they don't understand the language, let them experience the atmosphere. Let them experience the grandeur of the music that reflects the grandeur of our God. But I'm going to tell you something. If you do that, You're suddenly going to have people doing in the worship service what according to your concept of church perhaps doesn't fit. And that's where it gets a little difficult. You're singing the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and suddenly an Iranian guy standing in front of you raises his fist because he's so thrilled that his fortress in his life is not the Iranian government. 
but God. And you stand there and you think, we don't raise fists in this worship service. Suddenly you're called on, you're challenged. Or people start raising their hands in worship because they don't know yet that Presbyterians don't do that. (laughs) But they do it because to them that's just the most natural thing a human being does when he gets enthusiastic about something. We teach it to our kids, and when they're 15 we tell them to knock it off. You don't do that in church. But to these people, why not? The Jews raised their hands in the Old Testament when they worshiped God. In fact, we men, somebody might point out in 1 Timothy 2, are told to raise our hands in prayer. So suddenly you have stuff happening. You say, this doesn't really fit. And suddenly you're you're a multicultural congregation with some tension spots. Well, that's good. That's good. And one of the things I've had to learn as a down-to-earth Presbyterian minister is, is God does this kind of stuff in our midst because, because He wants to stretch us. He wants to stretch us in love of our neighbor. He wants to stretch us to understand what it means to love our neighbor as much as we already love ourselves. And so when we come to these tension spots, we don't rebuke and say, stop that. We don't do that here. But we start thinking to ourselves, how do I respond to this out of the fruit of the Spirit? How do I respond to this in love, in kindness, in patience? How do I respond to this in humility? And you see, when we become a congregation with those tension spots where we start asking ourselves those kinds of questions, then we're ready to be gathered as one church. Then we're ready to be gathered as a one new humanity church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may it be so. Help us to humble ourselves before you and the work that you are doing, even here in Lancaster County, as you are making missions so easy because you're sending the people to us so we don't even have to go. But Lord, give us the courage of Christ, the willingness to be crucified with him as we, as, as we take the steps out of our own comfort zones and we go into the lives of strangers. And Lord, we pray that you would just continue to give more and more refugee waves, regardless of what politicians say or do. You're the sovereign God of the nations, and you're on a mission to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And we pray, keep bringing them to us, Lord, and we will open our doors and we will lead them to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.